0: Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome everybody to this episode of the FEPS Talks podcast. I'm Andreas a Policy Analyst of the FEPS for Climate and Environment. And today with me is Mohamed Chaim, the Vice President of the S&D and the Rapporteur on the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. And just to get you started... I would like to ask you here, very, very happy to have you here, what exactly is a carbon border adjustment mechanism
1: and why should we care about it? It's the most difficult question, you know, this is the, because usually when we have debates, people ask you about the content, but we never sit still and think about, okay, what does it mean? What's the meaning or the goal of CBAM? Well, uh, the carbon border adjustment mechanism is a border adjustment in the context of the WTO that you can correct at the border. But now we do it for the carbon contact of products. But the idea is to create a level playing field between EU producers that deal with carbon pricing and producers from third countries that can import their products without needing to pay any carbon price under the emission trading system and uh, we see uh, this as a uh, uh, creating a level playing field between european producers and uh, producers outside the eu but it's also uh, let's say an alternative or uh, for the carbon leakage measures that exist today and one of them is for example free allowances so whenever you have uh, a carbon border adjustment mechanism you don't need free allowance as a, a carbon leakage measure so basically it helps on both sides it's it stops the weakening of the carbon pricing signal due to the free allowances and other subsidies and uh, it incentivizes producers outside the EU to also uh, decarbonize.
0: Okay, thanks a lot. So just to uh, clarify, it is some sort of tariff that is leveled at the board, levied at the border when goods enter the
1: EU in our case. Yeah, so from a trade perspective we have to be careful what words we use and a tariff is, uh, is, it can be uh, uh, interpreted a bit uh, uh, differently. So we prefer to say it, it's uh, basically CO2 price on the carbon content. And it's not a fixed tariff. So it's, that's why it changes uh, in the same way as the emission the CO2 price in, within ETS changes. So and it so it basically mirrors that uh, mm-hmm. uh, that price and that's why I don't think a tariff is a good idea mm-hmm. or a tax. And then we would be in the in an issue with the member states because they have the uh, basic. It, it's not a... how do you say that? It's not a, an EU um, competence. Competence. It's a member state competence. So we say it's mirroring the the CO two price, and then you pay certificates. It's not a tariff. So you hand over certificates uh, based on the carbon content of your products.
0: Okay and as you said this is the, the meaning of this is that you can kind of have the level playing field between producers of carbon yes. intensive products in the EU and outside mm-hmm. of the EU mm-hmm. and that this would mean that we can get rid of
1: free allowances. Well among others yes free allowances yes maybe also indirect cost compensation for heavy electricity use because we also want to extend the CBAM to indirect emissions because i think a big share of uh, the carbon footprint Lays and in indirect emissions, either electricity use or heating or cooling. And I think uh, if we take Paris serious, we have to significantly decrease our carbon footprint, whether you produce inside the EU or outside the EU. Because imagine, huh? we, uh, a big share of our emissions come from outside the EU. If you would measure carbon based on consumption, I think our footprint will be much higher if we look only at the end pipe or the production pipe emissions. So I think we need to take responsibility there as well. And uh, therefore I'm a very big enthusiast when it comes to carbon border adjustment. So thanks a lot for the explanation.
0: Now, in terms of there is going to be money raised by this carbon border adjustment mechanism.
1: Mm -hmm. What would be the estimate of this and how do you think it should be spent? So the estimate is is I think between 800 million euros to 1.2 billion, let's say 1 billion per year. So again, I want to be as honest as possible that eh? we need to make sure that not only our intention is that it this is an environmental measure but also that it's perceived internationally as an environmental measure then using revenues the use of revenues can help either improve this vision or weaken it so if you want at the one hand say this is an environmental measure, and then you use the revenues for your own resources, or for example, to subsidize or to use them in the in the own risk to finance all kinds of things. I don't think that helps so I think under the wTO it would be very helpful. I'm not the only one who's saying this basically the whole inter, the majority of the, in the the trade committee of the European Parliament is saying that as well. It's helpful if you for example use the money for international climate finance and by the way, the pledge that we made. For Paris to finance, to help finance international climate, let's say 100 billion a year, starting 2020, we're still a bit behind, I can tell you. So why not, you know, hit two birds with one stone? Use the money, also show that your intention is that this is a solely a climate measure or environmental measure, and you use the revenues to help other countries to decarbonize. And And I say specifically least developed countries. Do knowledge transfer help them decarbonize the electricity grid, I think that's good for them. And at the end, it's also good for us.
0: So uh, to understand, right, some of the revenues from the carbon border adjustment mechanism should be used in your view for international climate finance. In my view,
1: I think we should use it to first finance the administration that we are Mm -hmm. going to need to set up for this measure. And if I was in charge, if I can convince other political groups, I would say use as much, maybe even the whole bit for international climate finance. We need it because we made a pledge. And second, it helps us defend the position under the WTO that this is a climate measure.
0: Okay, let's perhaps also get a little bit into, because you've written as a shadow rapporteur, of course, a report with a lot of amendments uh, with regards to the Commission's initial proposal, one thing is that you proposed a different timeline yes. uh, from the Commission's one. Can you elaborate how this differ- your proposal differs from the one that was tabled initially?
1: So I think the Commission wants a transitional period of three years and then a phase-out period of 10 years. So the moment they introduced this bill, uh, we the industry still had, let's say, oh, just over 14 years, almost 15 years of free allowances. 15 years! Knowing that ETS started in 2005, we're talking about almost 30 years of free allowances in total. I mean, that doesn't add to the idea that this is a policy that we need to use to accelerate our ambition. Also, I believe that the European Court of Auditors is very clear on free allowances. They do not help decarbonize. We've seen studies by NGOs showing that windfall profits are being made using free allowances. I mean, we're talking about public money. Why can't we have a say in what is done with the, those funds? Uh, because I need, we need to see them as funds. Between 2000, let's say in the current period, 2021, 2030, that's I think the fourth phase of ETS. If you look at the 6 billion free allowances, based on the current price, we're talking about, let's say between 450 to 600 billion euros of value. I see them as subsidies. Why can't we have a say on what it's done? I think companies should use those free allowances to invest in decarbonization technologies and make sure that the prices for consumers are affordable. Because we need them to compete also with producers in third countries. This is fundamental. Huh? And what do I see is that companies get free allowances uh, due to economic reasons, close down a plant, and then sell those free allowances to compensate for their economic situation. These are real existing situations. I know a steel company that without the free allowances would have made a loss. So their economic situation was not that good. They had to close down a plant, Then they sold the free allowances they got from the EU for that specific plant on the market, and they compensated their loss with a small profit. I mean, that's ridiculous, to be honest. And between 2008 and I think 2018, it was calculated that approximately 50 billion euros was made through free allowances, either by selling them, second by cost pass-through, you know, you just pass mm-hmm. through the costs, even in the case that you get free allowances. And the third one, but it's a little bit more complicated, under the Kyoto Protocol, you could get these international carbon, uh, oh, yeah. uh, let's say, certificates, and you can replace them for the free allowances. And of course, they were much cheaper, and then you could use them for your carbon accounting, and then you can sell the free allowances on your European market. Ridiculous, to be honest. Again, Mm -hmm. let's look at these things as subsidies. If you just look at an average welfare person in the Netherlands, they have much more conditions that they need to, that they are hold on, upheld, you know, than big companies getting billions and billions of subsidies directly, indirectly, either through free allowances or any other uh, means. And I think this system has to show up. Direct fossil fuel subsidies in the EU, 55 billion. If you look at the IMF, they do a calculation on indirect and direct subsidies for fossil fuels. In the EU, we're talking about, let's say, a small 350 billion euros. This is outside the free allowances. Mm -hmm. eh? This is a lot of money. Why aren't we asking questions about that? If we would use those funds to decarbonize, eh? the situation we had today with Ukraine and Russia would have been perceived in a totally different way.
0: This is what I'm saying. Okay, yeah, that's a lot of information that's very sorry. I, no, no. Yeah. It's it's also very uh, good that you to to present all those numbers here. I mean, one question that kind of comes up here is a little bit if we need to really get rid of those kind all those massive subsidies that are still kind of maintaining us on the on the fossil fuel path and are well as you said a lot of conditions to people that want to decarbonize not so much of the status quo what is the role of a carbon border adjustment mechanism here is it as you said compared to those
1: numbers one billion a year doesn't sound like much money exactly no but for, that's why i i say and mm-hmm. this is the, maybe the question that i needed to f- finish mm-hmm. so i i say that we need to make the transitional period shorter we don't need three years to collect data i think we can do it in two years mm-hmm. i think we can do it in one year i think a lot of data is already there but uh, let's do 2 years let me be pragmatic and then instead of having a phase out period of 10 years i think we can do it in 4 years where well, i assume in uh, free allowances of 10% 20 30 and then fin- finally 40% a little bit not linear a little yeah. bit more uh, let's say uh, exponential small exponential <laughs> but i think it's understandable so what what we need to do is see how we can help industry decarbonize that's that's an important one but we also should check whether some sectors could have done more than they did, because it's very easy to keep on holding old technology and hopefully use as much time you can have to, you know, use it, because it doesn't require then new investments. But at some point, as I also said in the, in the Commission a couple of days ago, on the committee level, said I have a different vision on how our industry should look like in one or two decades. I want a vibrant efficient, sustainable, uh, new se- sectors that are state of the art, where the rest of the world looks at how we produce and say, wow, this is exactly what we need. Yes, in the beginning, we need to invest and costs will be higher than, than following a business as usual. But if we would look at all those subsidies that we give, the lock-in that we are in with the fossil fuels, I think uh, then a lot of opportunities will arise. We don't need more money to decarbonize. We need to use the current funds and invest them in other in other opportunities. Yeah, I think that's a that's a very valid point. And I think okay. and and a sebom mm-hmm. takes away the argument that unfair competition from companies outside the EU that are not that don't need to pay a carbon price. That argument is taken away from a lot of people to say. We cannot decarbonize because we create a market and guarantee that market for the EU producers. Indeed, if you export a lot of your products to the outside EU, then that is a problem. I I acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. We are now thinking of how, how we can help those export dependent companies by, for example, looking at dedicated funds within the innovation fund to help them invest in cleaner tech. So that they again become more competitive compared to our countries out or comp- companies outside and they don't feel the burden of a high CO2 price. Let's yes. zoom in on this a little bit. From your view, who would
0: be both in Europe in terms of sectors, but also outside of Europe in terms of countries on which have a higher sector concentration of those industries, who would be most affected by the? by the SIPA? From a country perspective? Perhaps from a... Inside
1: EU, from a sector perspective and outside EU from a country perspective. So again, then we have to go through it like step by step. Eh? If you look at the five sectors that uh, the EU has uh, selected and I, I have suggested uh, broadening the scope a bit. I think if you look now, I think the most affected, I mean, sectors we know mm-hmm. because they're defined in, by the commission. It's steel, aluminium, fertilizers and steel, fertilizers. Electric- and chem- No, no, chemicals hmm. is not there yet. What? Let me hear me. Cement. <laughs> yes. Cement. And electricity. <laughs> if you look at these products, I, I say extended also to chemicals mm-hmm. due to the high trade intensity and the carbon content of chemicals. But if you see, then it's Russia, basically, Ukraine, Turkey, Morocco. I think these are the most affected countries. All do with different reasons. So from one, we get a mix of these products. From another, it's mostly cement and electricity, etc., etc. And But of course, you have companies that, for example, you have a cement company that has um, a factory in or a plant in Greece and a plant in Turkey, the same company. I mean, mm. of course, they're affected, but at the same time, they could maybe increase production in the EU uh, instead of producing it in Turkey under different let's say, carbon circumstances, and then export it to the EU. So what the effect will be for that company is a bit hard to say. But again, it's an environmental measure. We want to decarbonize. We all signed the European climate law. And change comes at costs. But we say we are willing to help you. We don't just make laws and then say you deal with it. We also come with the right funds to help decarbonize. I mean, we're into this together. The question will be, are we continuously going to delay this transition or are we going to start doing it? And if I, for example, take one sector, let's take the cement sector. Yes, we can be very, uh, look at the differences between countries and say, well, they have a different type of cement and we have also different characteristics. But if I look at the best available technologies in the EU, Uh, Compared to, let's say, Morocco or India, then in the EU, it's the best available technologies for cement are approximately 48% of the companies use them. In Morocco, it's 84%. In India, I think it's even more than 90%. Best available technologies. I mean, if if they would decrease the the amount of clinkers, now it's getting Mm -hmm. very technical, they can decrease the carbon content of cement by 10%. They don't need other technologies for that. They can use the current technologies. The problem is... That if they do that, they get less free allowances on the ETS. So, the policies that we have in place do not always help decarbonize. There are, for example, if we take steel, if you invest in hydrogen to produce steel in a most sustainable way, ETS is not technology neutral. So, your steel is not seen as steel made, for example, from a, a, a chokes, Cokes uh, uh, furnace. So, you don't get the same allowances that they get because their benchmark is defined in a different way so you're mm-hmm. not only unfair treated due to the high investments needed in your uh, for your technology you also don't get the free allowances you can read subsidies from the eu for your product so you're you're twice unfairly traded i mean these policies need to change and then i think including a c-bomb we can really go forward in decarbonizations. but i mean which country exactly is hurt by what? What we've seen when we introduced CBAM in the beginning, when we not introduced, when we launched, when the commission launched ideas, what happened? Let's look at what happened. Turkey directly said we're going to increase our carbon, our ambitions, climate ambitions. Even Russia said that they will increase their ambitions. That's the real effect of CBAM. Maybe one day people will say, well, the revenues of CIBM are so little; it was really an ineffective tool. But they don't see that that's due to the change that co- that countries have made in order to keep on uh, having access to the second largest commercial uh, market in the world, because that's basically what we are, and that's the power of the EU. And I would rather have a CBOM that raises zero revenues, because that either means that countries have set up their own emission trading system with similar co2 prices or they decarbonized and for me both are okay
0: so it's kind of also this signaling to other countries that this is the direction and that
1: i have talks also with a lot of third countries Mm -hmm. i mean i think we also are friends you need to be polite you need if an ambassador asks you for a talk of course And they are from uh, an important trade partner, why not? What can we do to make sure that we get access to the European market? How can we, what could be a condition for an exemption? If we set up our own CDOM, if we set up our own emission trading, what kind of timeline are you thinking about? I mean, people are really willing to change, to follow the EU's ambition. And I think the CDOM already there has been shown that it's a powerful, powerful uh, mechanism. On the kind of implementation, because there's
0: a lot of problems, as you said, indirect emission measurement, a lot of different standards, then what is equivalence? What are your ideas to make sure that, again, there is no no loopholes and no abuses of basically um, showcasing that there is an equivalent system in place or knowing what the embedded emissions
1: are in, in a given product? So, I mean, I think it's time that we talk with uh, trade partners to see scientifically if we can agree on, let's say, an international accounting standard for carbon. I mean, this is very needed. I always make this joke that, uh, you know, I tried to lose some weight and uh, I was quite successful in it, to be honest. I still have a lot to do. (laughs) But uh, if you have a scale and you put one foot on it, then the scale looks good it's good for your ego but it has nothing to do with reality so if we don't measure carbon in the right way then indeed you can can seem that you produce in a very clean way compared to others but that's because you measure differently so if we only measure tailpipe without let's say uh, the, the the whole, let's say, from mining to uh, production phase or look at life cycle or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to have an agreement on how to measure carbon. That, that would help already a lot. If the US does it in a different way than we, then nobody, uh, that's not helpful for anyone. I think the scientific community should should play a key role there. That's one point. For me, I think that's that's an important one, point. Second, we have a transitional period. I, mm-hmm. I say two years. The commission says three years. I think there's a lot of things that you can do there. Uh, where in types of when you are implementing it, collecting the data, things will arise, you know, so will arise, maybe you need to adapt the products that fall under CBA. maybe also products further downstream, uh, but these are all possibilities that we have in the current legislation. This legislation is full of review clauses, a review clause, uh, implementation and delegated acts for the commission to adapt uh, the legislation if needed based on the data or based on the situation that arises at that point. I mean, what else can you do? What else can we do? If we... Residual risk always exists. And only uh, adding layer on layer on layer of legislation does not necessarily mean that the legislation improves. Sometimes you have to start to see uh, how it really uh, looks like in practice. And then you have to have the, let's say, the flexibility to adapt. And I think there are enough conditions in the current legislation as i said review clause delegated and implementation acts uh, on which of base we can smoothly and fast change uh, legislation to improve the implementation of the of this tool okay
0: yeah that sounds uh, optimistic but i think if you say that there is already there's a lot of technical work i guess also on which we can build on the one thing that i'm would be a little bit perhaps skeptical yeah. about is on those standards Sometimes they're there, but then the implementation and really the checking is not happening, or it's then subject to political interpretations or industry pressure. And also, in basically
1: now, we have, are in a different geopolitical situation. Yeah, but to, we also yeah. know, we have a lot of knowledge at the com- within companies. Mm-hmm. If, let's say, a steel company in the EU says that they produce steel, let's say, on an X amount of CO2 per tonne of steel and they also of course because everything will be transparent eh? my, i mean i think all the data should be on, in some database that people could check if, if they see that uh, their competitor does it for the half half of that x amount they know the technologies that exist so either they will flag and say we would like to have a independent verifier check the process Or they will complain, maybe at uh, at the court of justice, or some maybe some other uh, 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 some board where you can have a complaint. I think the the market also will have an incentive to check whether the data that's Mm -hmm. been submitted. And validated by the way, because we do that through uh, independent validators. But if there's a problem there, of course, they can, they also will flag this because it's in their benefits. It's creating unfair competition. In that sense, I really believe in the market. Okay. <laughs> and so, they
0: know their competitors better than we know. So there is already a constituency that has an interest in making of this course. work. Of yeah. course.
1: I think, I mean, would you, would you, if you are a producer in the EU and see that uh, your competitor, of course, which you, Probably know what technology they use, etc. Except if you see that they, you know, overperform, while you you, and you question whether they really, really overperform. Of course, you will flag this because it's unfair for you, for your, for your business.
0: Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's. (laughs) uh, It it sounds logical, but then the implementation. uh, Well, the implementation is always complex,
1: uh, uh, always. But have we ever? doubted these type of laws when it came to let's say migration laws or other let's say laws that we that also are very technical to implement it's really funny that you know whenever we want to protect something create a cleaner air for all our citizens by the way four hundred thousand europeans die each year due to, due to uh, air pollution this is in the benefit of all of us and yes it, it has we have to change but every time people are questioning efficiency of these type of laws because they are not in the interest of the status quo but uh, I don't see this same number of, uh, uh, of same attitude uh, from some politicians when it comes to other laws that are beneficial for them or where they really uh, think that's that fits their political agenda. I think we have to be skeptical always that's our task as politicians but as I said with, within the legislation we have enough checks and balances to make sure that we can adjust fast. I even made a joke yesterday or in the last NV committee that even the checks and balances have checks and balances. So where do you need me to stop? I mean, at some point we have to apply it and then see, believe that it works, Mm -hmm. I think it will work. But if not, adjust fast as we also did for ETS. ETS also had child diseases. Mm -hmm. Now it works perfectly. Even works that good that people are saying we should fix the price corridor because it's now getting uh, the market is working too it's hard. It's kind of volatile, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, okay. I mean,
0: it's one perhaps last question, question. Uh, in terms of is a CBAM, what is, what is the relation to other kind of trade measures? I think we've seen last year, for example, non uh, tariff clauses in the EU US steel mm-hmm. agreement so that mm-hmm. you have kind of uh, steel production standards for green steel to decrease emissions, in your view, is a C-bum comparable or superior or worse
1: than those other? No, no, they're compatible, compatible because the EU-US steel agreement, which they are now updating or working on, will define a standard on, let's say, the carbon content of what we accept as green steel. I can imagine that very soon we will also have a talk on how, def- how to define low carbon hydrogen. I mean, these are standards, which is the best way to decarbonize. Because if we just agree on, we will not accept certain products that have more car- carbon than this. Uh, I mean, that's very clear. Because you just mm-hmm. say we don't want your carbon, we don't want your product, we don't want your, to, we don't want you to pay your those C bomb certificates if you do not fulfill this uh, condition. I think they go hand in hand. I think the the more we just make a fundamental choice on the products that we would like to see sold in the eu uh, the better it is i mean and we already have these type of ways uh, these type of things uh? for example we don't want certain meat that has too much hormones in it that's just we think that it's all normal if we ask people in the eu they think it's fair we don't want clothes made by children i mean these are conditions that we all accept there's no children border adjustment on clothes. I mean, we think, would think that would be ridiculous because we just don't accept them. So I'm a big fan of uh, product requirements. If we would just agree on that we produce on a certain way in the EU and we don't accept production products that do not uh, produce on the same level, I think it's much stronger than uh, having, a let's say, a fee at the border. Okay, now a lot. That's my personal yeah. opinion, but I think uh, people sometimes think that you know, these product requirements on carbon are different than requirements on animal welfare, human rights, etc. We don't accept products that are made by oigos, or any other uh, people that need to do forced labor or slaves or children. I mean, these are normal. I think we also should think about uh, carbon and the effect it has on our life and especially also people in the global south. And if we just don't want to... Uh, uh, have certain I mean if there's a way to produce way more sustainable why then accept and still uh, Continue producing in a, a more polluted way even if you need to pay a fee at the border I think we have to be much stronger and I think this these deals between the EU and us are a very good example of that
0: Okay, so yeah, I understand it also builds the information and the yes. kind of things that are necessary to then piggy bank other policies yes. like a c-band yes. yes. on them Okay, then I think unless there is any final remarks you would
1: like to make? I mean, uh, let's see how it evolves uh, Mm. in the coming months and uh, uh, maybe we should have another talk if we know uh, the landing zone of CBAM and how how it will really look like uh, in the EP. We still have some, in Europe, we still have some uh, work to do but I'm very positive and excited that it will become reality and we will implement it. And we're not the only ones who are thinking about CBAM. There are other parts in the world that are also implementing this. I think in a couple of years, CBOM will be a normal measure that you take if you take carbon pollution and climate change seriously.
0: Let's close on those words. Yes. And uh, let's see what happens. And uh, I'm happy to accept another invitation once okay. we see how the file evolves. So thanks a lot, everybody, for listening to the Febs Talks podcast. And please also check out the other episodes. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag
1: Talks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned!